Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Beware, beware the Ides of March. So said the soothsayer to Julius Caesar this week, 2066 years ago. Caesar was assassinated on March 15th, 44 B.C. on the floor of the Roman Senate. Stabbed two dozen times by multiple attackers so that no one man would be held responsible. His death plunged the Roman Empire into civil war, something they were familiar with as Julius Caesar had come to power through a civil war. Just a few years before his death, Caesar had spent a decade in Gaul, what is now France, but he was not drinking fine wines and eating crepes and souffle at the time. He was bashing heads and doing his best to subjugate the native population, extending Roman power all over Europe. Ten years at war with his legions, and his work completed, he wanted to come home to Rome. The Roman Senate was not keen on this idea. Caesar was too powerful, too skilled in warfare. To just march back into the city, that couldn't be accomplished. The powers were afraid of him. So they demanded that he give up his army, surrender all of his wealth that he had gained in ten years of fighting, and submit to their authority. Ambitious men do not respond well to ultimatums. Caesar marched south, out of France, headed toward Italy. When he came to a tiny, nearly insignificant river, 50 miles long, about 3 feet deep, the Rubicon. This river formed the boundary between Italy and Gaul. To cross it was to declare war on his native country. Historians say that when Caesar arrived at the river, he paused. He turned to his officers and said, the die is cast. And then he crossed the Rubicon. That phrase, both of those phrases actually, have been a part of Western vernacular ever since. The die is cast and crossing the Rubicon. To cross the Rubicon is to reach a place of decision from which there is no turning back. And Caesar would add a third expression to our lexicon after he subdued his enemies and became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. A line that was sort of his signature phrase. Three words in the Latin. Veni, vidi, vici. And that is your crossword puzzle clue for today. Veni, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Without a doubt, no doubt whatsoever, the Apostle Paul, as a Roman citizen, one generation removed 
from Julius Caesar and born under the emperorship of Caesar's adopted son, Augustus, knew that legendary phrase. The entire Roman world knew that phrase. And it is most certainly on the Apostle Paul's mind as he talks about the victory accomplished by Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. I came, I saw, I conquered. The biblical turn of phrase is the benediction at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our English word rings with the Latin, Vicky, victory, victory in Jesus. There is a conquering and overthrowing of the powers and overcoming of our enemies accomplished with and by the cross of Jesus. Now last time I spoke, I introduced you to the oldest thinking associated with understanding the cross. The series that we're in now in this Lent period of crosswords and figuring out this puzzle of what the cross is all about. And two weeks ago, it was, it is, the ransom theory, though I, I don't like the word theory, but I'm sort of stuck with it. I don't use the word theory in a scientific way as if we could take the cross and dissect it and cut it open and see all its little parts. I don't mean it that way at all. It's just probably the best word we have when we're thinking about explanations, models, or metaphors. Because while the New Testament speaks clearly of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that's what He did, there is not a clear, systematic, or tidy way of thinking about how it works. And so the church has been left all these years to sort through the many pictures, the many models, the many theories mined from the Gospels and the letters of those included in the canon. The oldest such model, again, was the ransom theory. From the oldest gospel, from Mark, Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. And you might remember that that phrase, ransom, that one word in the Greek, means to remove from the marketplace. It was a term used in the slavery of the day. So when we are ransomed, the cross as this metaphor and picture of ransom, it means we, we have been set free from slavery. Our chains have been broken. And there is a liberation that we now enjoy. And today, building upon that first explanation, a second one, almost as old as the ransom theory, an explanation that has the most scriptural support of any of the models we will look at. That is why I jammed together passages from a half a dozen different locations. It is the conquering image. I came, I saw, I conquered. And theologians call it simply Christus Victor. The Christ who wins the victory. And this became, and in many traditions today, it is still the most accepted view of the cross. Jesus has overcome all enemies, all powers, sin, evil, death, hell, and the grave. 
and has subjected them to his authority. How did he do this? The short answer is that composite of scriptures I read today. Jesus became flesh and blood. Why? Because we are flesh and blood. To meet us where we are. And so that he would be vulnerable to death. So that he would die and in his death become the cure for death itself. By dying, he took on and battled death on its own terms and conquered. God gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the picture, I'm sad to say, is one we're very familiar with these days. And the picture is a great battle. It is an image of Christ coming into a world that is a war zone. The ground is black and burned, peppered with craters. Smoke hangs heavy in the air. There is nothing but destruction, absolute madness at every turn, evil and death on every hand, suffering, hunger, thirst, fear, And Jesus enters this theater of war, this battlefield, having crossed his own Rubicon, and somehow, by means of his own death on the cross, he defeats the enemy that has invaded and laid waste to God's good creation. The enemies of sin and death. And this view, this metaphor, shows up early and often in the New Testament and in the writings of the earliest Christian thinkers who lived closest to the time of Jesus. For example, one early theologian named Irenaeus, who was born not long after the first apostles died, he explained it like this, and this is the best simple summary of Christus Victor you will find anywhere. Quote, God came to earth that He might kill sin, deprive death of its power, restore life and freedom to all humanity, And raise the cross as a monument of victory. There it is. Christus Victor. And these were people and writers who said these things. Who were persecuted. And I mean truly persecuted. Not inconvenienced while living in a pluralistic society. There's a difference. Borrowing words from the writer of Hebrews. They were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. They were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. They were destitute, oppressed, and mistreated. They were too good for this world. Yet they still believed. And because of how they were treated, they had to believe that Christ had won. And though they were suffering in this current world, this current world would not have the final word on all things. That the final victory was already assured. As they understood it, on the cross, Jesus took upon himself what was destroying the world and defeated it. N.T. Wright says it like this the multiple strands of sin and evil and wickedness, oppression, violence, judgment, and all the rest came rushing together to do their worst to Jesus. He took their full force and he did so because this was God's purpose. Let's think about what that might look like. I used to pull this example from my imagination. 
And I've used it in the past, but after the last two years, it's no longer necessary to use my imagination. Imagine that our community, and I've used this one before, imagine that our community comes under the attack of some sort of biological agent or incurable disease. Everyone everywhere is infected. The hospital fills up. Doctor offices overflow. Before long, it is the morgue that begins to overflow. There seems to be no hope, no way to prevent our deaths. And the outside world looks at us and realizes the crisis, and they quarantine us. I used this example 10 years ago, and it seemed so harmless. It's so easy to imagine this now. So we're cut off from everything. But then somehow, some way, a man gets in. How, we don't know. He broke the rules, he broke through the quarantine line, and there he is in our community, and he is wonderfully immune. And he goes around helping people, and healing people, making people better. And finally, he goes down to Sacred Heart Hospital, where the CDC has set up their headquarters. And he says to them, I need you to inject me with this biological agent. And the director says, I'm not going to do that. You're, you're the only one here that seems to be immune. And the man says, I know. If you will inject me with this virus, you inject me with this agent. I will die, but you will pull from me the very antidote that will cure everyone else. Can you imagine that? Of course you can now, after these last couple years. That is a picture a contemporary picture of what the cross is about. Inject me with all that is wrong with this world. And from that, I will turn the disease into the cure. From that, I can heal the world. A true story. April 1986. Reactor 4 at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine exploded and released seven tons of radioactive material into the atmosphere. The worst atomic disaster the world has ever seen. And pray to God that we never see another one. Because it was the former Soviet Union, we'll never know the true number of how many people died or were impacted by that explosion. Moscow reported 31 people. And a few others had to be evacuated. The Chernobyl Union, however, has validated today records of 60,000 Ukrainian and Belarusian cleanup workers dead. And 165,000 more disabled. And it could have been worse. If not for the bravery of a handful of men and women, all four reactors would have failed. And the resulting explosion would have made Eastern Europe uninhabitable for more than 200 years. I want you to let that sink in for a second. A disaster so bad that no one could live in Western Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Estonia, Latvia, or Eastern Germany for 200 years. And maybe, maybe three, four, five hundred million people dead. 
One of the brave individuals was this man, Alexander Leilachenko. He was at his post as an electrical engineer, supervisor in the early morning hours of the Chernobyl disaster. He waded into the flooded control room three different times to turn off spewing radioactive valves, refusing to order others to do it, though he could have. He intentionally wanted to protect those younger than him. He took on the danger himself. The water was so contaminated that weeks later, when helicopter pilots briefly flew over the site at 60 miles per hour with tank armor beneath their feet, they got enough radiation to last them for five years. This man walks into it three different times. And when he came out the third time, he smiled, he looked at his co-workers and he said, well, mankind is saved. And he got his lunchbox and he went home and had dinner with his wife. And he was dead within the week. That one act, one man saved, literally, Eastern Europe by doing what? By absorbing into his own body the very worst that that disaster was pumping out, absorbing it all into himself that it would not pass on to others. Are you getting it? A final one. And I thought this would stretch our imagination a few years ago too, but now it does not. Every day for the last several weeks, I get up in the morning and do my wordle and... I brood over the stories and images and pictures that are coming out of, again, Ukraine. This current war actually began in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, but the invasion that was launched a couple weeks ago, the largest on the European continent since World War II, escalated matters a million-fold. There are hundreds of thousands of soldiers, thousands of casualties, the constant threat of chemical, even nuclear weaponry. Chernobyl that I just told you about is now held by Russian forces. There is the danger of the war spilling out further into Europe. There is the existing and coming financial crunch for the whole world because of this war. Innocent civilians are being targeted and murdered. The Russian people are being fed lies and misinformation and being oppressed themselves. Do you look and listen at that and feel hopeless? Do you? Do you ask questions like, what could I do? What should I do? How can this be stopped? How do we re restore things? How do we not just bring an end to the war? How do we establish peace? Well, what if a youngster from Kiev came forward with a fantastic proposal? What if she said, I will take all of this war, all of this violence, all of this inhumane treatment, all of this oppression, all the sinister ambition behind it all. I will take all the deaths of the innocent and the guilty. I will take the resulting hunger. I will take the resulting thirst. I will take it all into my body and I will let it kill me so that nobody else has to die. If that were possible, 
the suffering of that one individual would be beyond all comprehension. But it would save the Ukraine, save Russia, save Europe, might save the world. If you could get it all down to one person. And as fantastic as that sounds, when we Christians say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that is what we are saying. That He took it all so that no one else would have to suffer from it. Well, that's great, Ronnie. And I believe it, but can you explain to me why the world is still so messed up? Right? Can you tell me why people are still so messed up? Why does sin just seem to increase rather than lessen? Why is there death everywhere? How can there still be so much suffering in this world if Jesus has indeed conquered sin and death at the cross? Well, aren't those good questions? And I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I will say this. There is a cure for what ails this world. But not everybody wants to take the vaccine for it. The way of Jesus cures this world. It would bring peace to this world. But not everyone is interested in taking that medicine. Are they? The reactor has been sealed, but there's still fallout. The battle is over. That was handled at the cross, but the war goes on. In any battle, in any war, in any competition of any kind, there comes a point in time in that battle where the decisive move is made. And victory has been assured. In June of 1944, when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy, the war was over for the German army. They would never recover from that. But the war went on another year. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, all of Rome trembled because they knew what was coming, even though it would take him three years. To mete out the justice that he thought people deserved. If we could, by miracle, gather up the handful of people that perpetuate the current war in Europe and lock them up in a cell, the war would be over. But it wouldn't be over because damage has been done and restoration is hard work. Last Easter, I shared these words. From a Russian, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He was a Russian writer, existentialist, a man unafraid to ply the depths of grief and loss and redemption. He's a master. But I want to leave you today with his words. And somehow, some way, as you see the images that are currently on your television, as you fight and struggle with your own struggles and your own heartaches, as you come up against so much of the injustice and ugliness in this world, try to remember these words. 
Pain and suffering are always inevitable. But I believe, like a child, that all suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradiction will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That at the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. It will comfort all resentments. It will atone for all crimes. It will make up for all the blood that has been shed and make it possible to forgive all that has happened. And it will have been made possible by the victory of Jesus. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.